This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week's show is one where I dedicate the whole show to a particular event. And that event is the Columbia Art League's annual Art in the Park Festival, which is back after a two-year pandemic hiatus and takes place this weekend at Stevens Lake Park. It will be the 62nd iteration of the festival that started as a street art fair back in 1959. Over the intervening six decades, the fair was held in many different locations, including Peace Park, beneath the now dismantled concrete overhangs on Broadway, the shelter insurance grounds, the tiny patch of grass in front of Stevens College's Mecklenburg Theatre, before finally landing at Stevens Lake Park back in 2006, the year before I arrived to run the Columbia Art League and the festival. So we have a chat with the person now tasked with organising the festival, the Columbia Art League's Executive Director, Kelsey Hammond. Plus, we'll be visiting with two of the artists who will be at this weekend's festival. And we also have a little music from one of the bands who will be playing a set over the weekend in the Roots and Blues booth. So here we go. I organised 11 Art in the Park festivals during my time as Executive Director of the Columbia Art League. Kelsey Hammond, who has been the Executive Director of Cal for almost three years now, has planned three Art in the Park festivals. But this weekend's Art in the Park will be the first one she has had the chance to see come to fruition as the pandemic completely shut down the festivals that she had planned in 2020 and 2021. And as I well know, a huge amount of work goes into organising a multi-day outdoor event. And the biggest stress of all is that whole outdoorness. Art in the Park is a rain or shine event as most of the attending artists are off to other festivals the following weekend. So Kelsey and her team of staff and volunteers will be at Stevens Lake Park come June rain or June sweltering humidity, <laughs> as will over 70 artists visiting Columbia from across the state and beyond. So who better to launch this week's Art in the Park special show but the woman in charge of it all, Kelsey. Hammond. Kelsey, I know well how precious your time is right now. So thank you for squishing us into your schedule. <laughs> of course, anything for you, obviously. <laughs> what percentage excited versus anxious <laughs> are you right now? I'm still more excited than anxious, which is crazy. Great. Yes. Again, I haven't done it. So next year, maybe it'll be worse. But um, I am, I don't know, I'm just really excited to be outside and to see a lot of people and and all of that. So that's that's where I am right now. A few tears every once in a while. But <laughs> <laughs> Right. I have to say that at this point in the run up to Art in the Park, my whole nervous system was so awash 
with adrenaline that I could probably have run 10 marathons. But you Mm -hmm. are a much more laid back, roll with it kind of gal than I am. So I am hoping that your calm will not be ruffled by the emotional roller coaster and physical endurance test (laughs) that is art in the park. What is it that you are most excited about? And what is giving you sleepless nights right now? I actually have been sleeping with my to-do list on my bedside table for if no other reason than if I think of something in the middle of the night, I can write it down in, in scrawled writing that I can't read the next day. But <laughs> inevitably, it's already on the list. It's just sort of like, oh, did I think of this thing? And then I write it down. So um, what I'm glad to find is that most things on the to-do list have already been done. And I had great advice from the person who had done this for so many years named you, um, which was <laughs> if it's not done mid-May or started, then it's not happening, which is a great piece of advice. It kind of makes you go, Oh, great. Well, that isn't done. That must not be so necessary that it needs to happen. You know, maybe that's a little bit more of the extra bit of customer service or the extra bit of fluff or the extra bit of something, which, you know, in a perfect year would be a great thing to have. But at this point, it's all right. You know, we're, we're all hands on deck. Let's make it happen. Yeah, I did have lots of little cherries on the icing that yeah. I developed over the years that I can imagine the next person coming in is just scratching their head and thinking, why <laughs> did you put all these hurdles in your way? <laughs> I mean, some are like, oh, I get it. And some I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. OK, well, we're going to do it. and We'll see if that makes sense. You know, <laughs> of course, I've done it. This is actually several almost five years I think after you did your last one so it's like there have been some years where you were not the head and also then two years of us not doing it and we're all sort of looking into our brains trying to remember all of the pieces and parts that go into it so including yourself thankfully you've been helpful right. in this as well it, it is like re reinventing the event really after <laughs> yeah. two years of not doing it which is the same across the country I mean most yeah. art festivals have not happened for two years some got postponed and happened at the end of last year but I'm sure that for all festival organizers it's a bit like digging into the toy box and trying to work out what all the toys do oh absolutely so i mean you've had two virtual practice <laughs> yes. runs at art in the park which you went into fully thinking that they would happen certainly then maybe 2021 maybe 2020 yes. definitely was a yeah. little bit iffy <laughs> i think 2020 we were like mm, maybe not but 2020 definitely or 2021 we definitely thought this is going to happen And so now it's here for real. And I'm curious whether now the festival is here in real life, whether you feel like there was a benefit to going through the process twice before. I think so. But I also think that you still don't know what you don't know. And and so there's an aspect of, you know, the stuff early on, you know, I got to know the application process for the artists, and I got to know all of that kind of stuff really well. So now I feel very comfortable with that system and some of the other pieces. But come whatever happens in like beginning of April through now, it's like, okay, you know, this is, this is when it gets real. So that's the stuff that I feel like um, mercifully I sort of didn't have to do and then have it canceled at that point. You know, I was, I was still sort of early days with both to have to cancel. So now I'm, I'm really seeing, oh, there is so much stuff that happens at this time. What can I do next year? I'm already thinking like, what can I do next year early? Like, can we get all the design work done mm. this summer? for the next year, you know, like, why wait on any of that? Like, let's just get it in the can, you know, that kind of thing. So just trying to figure out how to make it more of a year long process and maybe save some of the 
feel like we're scrambling a little bit at the end to get some of the stuff done. Yeah. March, April and the first half of May are the are the busiest months. And I used to say there was only really one month that I wasn't working on Art in the Park and that was July. You know, even even after the event, there's a lot of thank you letters and this follow up and this is a lot of wrapping up to do and putting everything away and finances and all that kind of thing. And so then July, I'd be like, okay, I'm taking July off from thinking about Art in the Park. And yes. then in August already, you're starting applications for money. <laughs> exactly. No, it's true. It's really true. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, I don't think that I realized how early it really does start before. And that will be so helpful for this next year. So I think that both Mary, who does our education programming, and I are both new to the actual art in the park. So for us, we're like, well, we don't know, we don't know, we're so excited to get out there and just do the event because you are able to adjust and learn on the go, right? So so we'll be able to add in things that we thought would go better. You always listen to what your volunteers say and what the participants say and, you know, sort of ear hustle on the folks that are attending to see what people would have wanted instead or what they like or what they don't like. So you take that into consideration, but even just the logistics of how, you know, how do we get the, you know, who sets up these tents when and all that kind of stuff is sort of like, I haven't seen it happen yet. So I'm really excited to right. just literally see a whole festival happen in a matter of hours you know you have at least historically been to the festival so that was an advantage yes. you had over me because I picked it up pretty much the first year I was in <laughs> Columbia so I'd never been to art in the park and I had this big binder with lots of information in it and, and I just it's sitting next to me by the way <laughs> yeah I took it home and just burst into tears because I'm like I have no idea where to start on this yeah. and so at least you know, you've seen it. So I wonder whether having that advantage, whether if you even remember at this point, because it's so long mm -hmm. ago, going to the festival, whether you saw things and thought, oh, if I was running this, I would do this. If you brought with you some thoughts from the past into this year's festival. I think a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I went when I was a, a parent of small children. So therefore, who remembers anything? Because your <laughs> brains are very wibbly. But um, I mostly remember seeing the art, you know, not, not necessarily looking at it as an event, but I worked in student life at Mizzou for nine years and helped with fall welcome and like a lot of huge events, you know, we did tie dye for 350 people in a three hour time period. Like I've done that and I've managed that and that kind of stuff. So I, I know what an event, what goes into planning this kind of event and understanding how all those pieces work. But that's different, obviously, than this, too. So so there's still like until you go through it, start to finish, it's still, you know, you're still not sure what will happen. I think what I did for this year with the great advice of my super core, the volunteer team that helps plan this, the advisory board really is cut some of the stuff that I think we've done before. So like some of the stuff that I feel like was sort of wonderful, but an add on, you know, like let's bring it down to basics this year and then build from there if we need to. So we've taken out a lot more of the performances and more of the entertainment. We'll still have live music and we'll have a great percussion workshop that, that someone comes in and does like bongos and teaches kids how to play drums and stuff. So that'll be great. But some of the other stuff we're just not doing this year and hopefully we can build it in again if, we, if it makes sense. But some of that stuff I think that I, I just thought this is new. So we need to take down some of the stuff that we're doing and come back to who are artists how can we get new artists involved? That kind of thing was, was sort of my impetus. And also thinking too, with like with the kids crafts, 
we really wanted to think about how can we make these things experiential as opposed to bringing home lots of little projects. Mm. Not that parents don't love all the stuff their kids make, but also there's <laughs> only so much room on the fridge, you know, especially when we all have stainless steel. So how do you let your kid understand that, that the experience of making art, sometimes it's okay to leave it at the park. You don't necessarily have to take everything home and give kids the experiential making of art, not necessarily like, and now I have a little thingy that I'll hang on my backpack until it falls off, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, both are cool, but <laughs> that's kind of what we were going for. I'm sure that will get a lot of votes from parents. Yeah. <laughs> I, as a parent myself, I'm like, yep, that sounds good to me. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, after two years of no festivals, this is inevitably a rebuilding year, as you say, for Art yeah. the Park. And Artist applications, I think you said, were lower than past years, which I know is true for many, many mm -hmm. art festivals around the country, including even the huge St. Louis Art Fair that I helped to jury earlier this year. They were probably three or four hundred artist applications fewer than in past years. Do you get the sense that artists are simply sitting this year out still because of pandemic or whether they've decided to retire from festivals. What have you heard from artists through the application process? I've heard more on the, the over the application process. So like after they've applied, I've had a number of people who were accepted and had to drop out because of unforeseen family complications or, wow, there's just a big thing happening in my life right now that I was not prepared for and I have to go deal with that. And I don't want to assume what's going on, but you know, there's still this thing called COVID around. <laughs> and so I know right. some people are still dealing with that and, you know, and, and, and that's part of people's everyday life actually still. And so I, I don't know if that's, I don't want to blame everything on that either, but I think that is part of what's going on. And also that we've all, I think changed, many people have changed their lifestyle over these last two years in terms of, wow, I used to just be able to push through this, like, I'll just make it happen. Like, this is what I signed up for. I'm going to do this. And now I think people are more willing, I hope are more willing to say, you know what, this is not bringing me joy. <laughs> you know, this is, this is actually making it harder for me to do my day to day. And, and I really need to cut this part out. And while that might be hard, I, I got to do what I got to do. And in a way that hopefully is like healing for themselves and not, you know, it's a bummer for us, for sure, for the festival, because those artists are talented and wonderful. But I would rather they feel like they're not being stretched too thin or something, you know, to make it all happen. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm just sort of assuming, but I think the, you know, a couple of folks went to one of these festivals in Illinois recently and they were like, yep, there's less artists and the planners of the festival were like, we have less people who signed up, you know, and the artists who were there were like, we're hoping there'll be lots of people who come out and support us. And I think there were, you know, I, I think that the people who want to go to the events are definitely there but they're not sitting in the tent for two days after they've set up a whole day on Friday in the heat and all that. I have worried for several years, way before the pandemic, that art festivals, as we have long known them and come to expect them, may potentially go extinct. That the next generation of art buyers and collectors and the artists that show at festivals may want to do things differently and that make affairs mm -hmm. rather than art festivals may be the future. And I know that you have a maker component this year. So tell me a little bit what your thoughts are on that and about your maker component that you have this year. Sure. So when I define maker, really, I'm thinking of, in quotes, indie crafters. So you have the fine art craft festival that we do and that we're have been sort of a part of is I think really for the person who's like, 
this is what I do all summer. Not everyone is like that, but many of these artists are people who they plan their whole summer around and they travel around to these different big events. And that's how they make a large portion of their money is the summer um, set for their summer sales. And there are a lot of people who are, um, this is, maybe it's their side hustle. I can speak from my own personal experience. And Mary, again, she has her own business called Mold and Deckel with her partner and they make their own paper and then they book buying journals and that kind of thing. So they go to these little makers festivals or big indie craft fairs. And one of the big ones is called Renegade. And it is, it has launched tons of careers. One Canoe Two, who is, you know, a local company, they sold out their first Renegade that they did. And they kind of were like, okay, maybe we can do this as a business, you know? So I think people who have kind of a side hustle and are making stuff on the side, they have their regular nine to five. They haven't transitioned into full-time artist, or maybe they don't want to. They do more of these indie craft fairs or these maker fairs because it's really like this hobby that they've really enjoyed that they're like, you know, I could probably sell this, you know, there's a market for this kind of thing. And then they turn it into more of a business if they feel like it's working. So the idea was, because I agree with you that there's sort of a, I don't know, it feels like there's a drop off in some of these larger art festivals mm. and there's a bigger maker movement, but the two have not kind of come together yet. Until now. Uh, maybe. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> so this year we'll have our, our wonderful artists who are be in their own booth who they've prepped for this kind of thing. They have their own tent, they have their own displays, they have, you know, they've got their plan for the summer. And then we have some of these makers who are great, who might not have a whole booth tent set up, or they might not have the same entry fee to have their own booth. You know, they haven't quite figured that stuff out, or maybe they don't have the time or whatever it is. So we have an area in our big tent that Parks and Rec loans us that will be, uh, we'll have about 13 makers who will be in there. So they'll have their own like six foot table area space that they can set up their different wares. And then it's a reduced booth fee from like what the other artists are paying because it's not a 10 foot tent space so they'll have a little bit less product maybe it'll be slightly lower price point it might be you know a lot of printmakers a lot of jewelry makers who are making things out of like polymer clay versus sterling silver that kind of thing it kind of depends on who who the maker is so as usual, there is a plethora of media in the festivals, ceramics, drawing, painting, jewellery, printmaking, woodworking, glass, fibres, sculpture, etc., etc. And you have lived with images of these works for months now. So tell us about some of the bodies of work that you're excited to see. There is one artist whose name escapes me, of course, who is making these amazing wood whimsical sculptures that I think are hilarious. <laughs> sort of like dog faces with giant eyeballs that are, you know, staring at you like, I'm ready for my food. Like you could hear what the what the sculpture is saying to you, I think, <laughs> when you walk by. So, so I'm really excited about that. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of like, just really good pottery. I love pottery. I love ceramics. I try to purchase and buy all of that stuff for my own home so that I'm really excited to see who is coming. I like traditional pottery too. Like I like the wood fired stuff. So I'm excited to have a lot of that. And we have some, some printmakers and some other folks who I feel like are bringing kind of a younger, hipper, whatever that means to different people <laughs> um, vibe. So I think it's going to be a really good mix of folks. And again, it's not maybe the same people who've always come. So I think that'll be fun for the different 
different people showing up. Yeah, looking through the list that you sent me, there's definitely a lot of names that I recognize from years ago that have been coming here for a decade or more, but also lots of new names. And that's always exciting because even though it's fun to collect from a particular artist you buy from them one year and then you really enjoy their work all year and you think oh you know next year I'm going to spend a bit more money with them or get a second piece from them and so you like to go back and see them again but also you really need that variation in an art festival of new people coming in and spreading the word about it it's it seems that this year is a predominantly Missouri-based festival in terms of the artists and I guess that's because of gas prices and all sorts of things people aren't traveling as far does it feel like it's a little more local to you this year too it does yeah I mean I I don't remember from previous experiences of myself at art in the park walking around remembering where everyone's from but just looking through previous catalogs when someone will call and ask hey do you know who this artist was they were from Little Rock like the people who buy the work always remember where the person was from which I think is so interesting so um but I think this time around yeah there's a lot more Missouri wide but over the whole state I mean not you know not Columbia necessarily but but definitely more Missouri and and a few a few far-flung folks I think we have a person from Texas and we have um someone from we have a couple people from Illinois and New Mexico Colorado yeah we've got a few of those folks for sure But yeah, on the whole, I feel like it's a fairly Missouri representative group this time. So besides the main event, the artist vendors, the makers, there is, of course, lots of additional activity that you mentioned in passing, the musical performances, the children's art making and art installations. Tell us a little bit about what art installations you have this year, because that really ties into the idea of experiential art that people have at the festival. Yeah, so we have um, we have, let's see, five art installations we're going to have a huge astroturf and other kinds of, you're going to want to touch this <laughs> art installation with gentle fingers um, made by Lisa Sims. That is going to be sort of the welcome art installation for when you come into the park. I think it's going to look super fabulous and everyone can take their picture in front of it and things. So that'll sort of be at the entrance. There's a, a kind of a wind, like a metal wind sculpture that's going to be out on the bridge that goes across the lake. So there's two art installations out on the lake, paintings by Sarah Nguyen. She's going to basically enclose the big pavilion out there on the bridge. I'm not using the correct words because I haven't learned the park as well as everyone else. But anyway, the island, the island. Yeah. So she'll have a space there that she creates that I'm what I understand is that when you walk in, it will be fairly submersive. So you'll you'll feel like you're enclosed in this space, even though you are actually in the middle of the water. So that'll be interesting. Tavia Sanza has like a has some floating work that'll be in the lake on the non-swimming side. Oh, and then there will be these hammock seating structures that have been woven out of recycled materials as well. So that will be another art installation that will be there. So a lot of good, interesting stuff that you can touch and experience. So hopefully what you'll do, what will happen is you'll actually get an experiential feeling when you're in there next to the work We also will have some cool installation pieces that we're making that are sort of more like selfie stations or, you know, fun, fun things that people can take their picture in front of and show your friends where you are and what you've been through (laughs) at Art Park. A little sweaty, but in front of something cool. And you do have some music. I think it's the Roots and Blues stage. They're partnering with you this year. So there is some live music happening, right? Yes, there is. Yeah. So we have um, four bands that Roots and Blues have secured for us. So the Lonesome Companions, Sifa, January Lanterns, 
and the Calvin Street Band. So we'll have two acts per day organized by Roots and Blues. And then we also have um, the Lincoln University Drum Corps and High Steppers are coming on Saturday at noon. So they'll do like, they're really fun. It's like a 15 minute, but really fun, high energy performance. Maybe it's like 20, 30 minutes. And of course, our local hands, the barbershop quartet, they're going to come through and sing to people and wander around and sing too. So there's, you know, there'll be some good music that's just kind of chill and nothing too loud, nothing staged really. It's going to be more in a tent playing out and people can kind of sit around and listen and eat their lunch and stuff. Well, of course, Art in the Park cannot happen without a small army of volunteers <laughs> who help with booth sitting, ferrying the artists and all their wares into the park for setup and then back out again on Sunday. Artist hospitality, children's art making, showing children around. Are you doing a young collector's pavilion this year? We are. Mm-hmm. Yes. So doing that or serving fruity water at the water bar <laughs> and so much more. How are your volunteer numbers looking? If people still want to sign up, when do you need people? People can still sign up. We really would love help on Sunday for load out or anytime Sunday, really, but also to help load out, which is actually really fun because it's sort of like everything's getting kind of like shut down. So it's like, do, 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 like the dominoes start kind of fall and you kind of see how everything goes. So um, that part, and then we'll, you know, give you some pizza and beer after if you want to. So um, that's always a nice, a nice thing to help with. But yeah, so Sunday um, is, I think, the space we need the most help, but you can still sign up and volunteer. Okay, and they can do that via the Columbia Art League website, columbiaartleague.org website, and then click on Art in the Park and then click on the link for volunteers. Is there anything, before we close, anything you'd like to ask me about the festivals of your, any burning questions for the previous director? (laughs) I would love to know, like, what was your favorite part? Like, what was the thing where you felt, so it's a two-parter. One, what was your favorite part? Well, you were there. I know that there would be, I know it was maybe fraught, but what, think about the time that you were like, this is working or, you know, what was the thing that made you feel the most excited? And then afterwards, what was your feeling like the Monday after? Like, how did you feel? (laughs) I'll start with the second part first. And that was just huge relief, just (laughs) exhausted and so emotionally drained that it was that it was done for a year that I checked it off for another year because it was yeah I, I find it very very stressful I mean and I think for me the favorite part was um, probably on the Friday when everybody starts arriving and you see people that you haven't seen for a year and you know after doing it for eleven years you get to know all of the artists pretty well and it would be always be fun and. It would be like meeting old friends and then off they go and the volunteers arrive and they start shuttling them into the park and and everything gets set up. And so just that moment of, you know, you'd arrive in the park on Friday morning at 7.30 and there's nothing, almost nothing there. There's a couple of big tents that we've put up in advance, but otherwise it's just this empty field. And then you turn and then you're so busy all day and you turn around at five o'clock yeah. and there's a whole <laughs> festival <is>. going there <laughs> on. It's so exciting. All the tents are there. It's like a yeah. little village that pops up. And I would always like to, at some point over the weekend, usually usually Saturday afternoon when everyone's things have settled down, there's like a little bit of moment of a, a kind of an, a calm in the storm. And I would go and stand on the hill by myself and I'd look out over this village and all the people and it was so colorful and I'd think, I did this. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a nice moment to see so many people having a good time and to realize what joy all of this mountain of work that I had done. But I could see, I mean, it was 
it was multiplied so many times in terms of the joy that I beheld before me. So I think that was my favorite moment. <laughs> well, I have to say, now I'm teary a little bit. So thanks a lot, <laughs> Queen One. <laughs> You're welcome, Queen Two. <laughs> well, the 64th Annual Art in the Park is at Stevens Lake Park this weekend, Saturday the 4th and Sunday the 5th of June. Festival times are 10 till 5 on Saturday and 10 till 4 on Sunday. Art in the Park is still a totally free event, but do bring some spending money because even if you only go home with a set of note cards or a mug, you are supporting artists and the tradition of creating works made with love and by hand. And Kelsey Hammond, thank you for chatting about Art in the Park. And I hope you will find time this weekend to stop and breathe in the festival taking place all around you and think, yeah, I did this. <laughs> thank you, Diana. I appreciate it. Are you crying? A little bit. <laughs> 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 I have a very different skill set. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very quiet. Thank you. Diane. Thank you. I know. Well, I am a little bit and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to get to that point. <laughs> oh, you'll be fabulous. It will be fabulous. It will all be well. And yeah. if it isn't, you know what? You just end up with stories to tell people later on. <laughs> For real. For real. <laughs> As Kelsey Hammond mentioned, there are a few local musical performers lined up to play this weekend at the Roots and Blues booth. So let's take a wee musical interlude before our next chat. This is a husband and wife duo, Kristen and Andrew Camp, who perform as the January Lanterns. And this is a track called Thinking of Someone New from their first full-length album released earlier this year, entitled For the Kids When They're Older. Sinking in seems like it's always like it's always been. You wanted strength, strength and courage. I could only muster up more and more baggage. I'll watch you sleep tonight. It must be way past curfew. Are you asleep tonight? Oh, are you? Oh, are you? Oh, are you? Thinking of someone new. Still seeing everything Words Don't come so naturally Close my eyes and wait around Undo the covers till I notice you were sleeping I'll watch you sleep tonight It must be way past curfew 
January Lanterns with Thinking of Someone New. Last fall, I visited Belleville's Art on the Square Festival with some friends and we were all mesmerised by the luminous work of my next guest, painter Michael Stedham. His works are not only deliciously full of saturated colours, but he then combines his rich hues with an incredible ability to capture the light and transparency of glass. Glass jars, decanters, bottles, vases. He can paint transparency in a way that makes you stand and stare at his paintings in disbelief, which just seem to radiate their own internal light. Michael has a long list of art festival appearances under his belt, along with a myriad of first place, best in show, people's choice and jurors awards to his name. And like all good artist stories, his whole artistic career started with a seventh grade art teacher. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Michael. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Well, let's start at the very beginning with Mr. B, the art teacher who spotted your artistic talent and lit a flame under it. How much do you think Mr. B created the course for your life in art? I actually think a lot. I remember uh, some of the kids because, you know, in school, there's you have the school artists and somebody said, do you think Michael will become an art teacher? Because at that time, there's nothing greater than an art teacher. And he said, oh, no, he'll go much further than that. (laughs) And that just always inspired me. So when you went home and told your parents that Mr. B had declared that you would go much further than being an art teacher and that you knew at the age of 12 the direction of your life, what did uh, your parents say? Huh, I didn't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think I ever told anybody I was going to be an artist. I just knew I was going to be a full-time artist. As I got older and I would tell people, they would always discourage you and say, oh, you'll starve and all that kind of stuff. But none of that was true. You said that there'd been a, a social studies teacher, I guess, that had told you that you were going to be starving if you you wouldn't make any money if you were an artist, but that you decided to believe one over the other. What was it that really put your belief in the idea of art as a journey rather than, oh, you're not going to make any money? Well, that's a good question. I think that as I was in school, there were some teachers that turned me on to some different type of thinking. Um There was a book called Dancing with Porcupines when I was in the ninth grade. And it was really, uh, you can do whatever you want, especially in America. And uh, you just don't have to settle for what people tell you. And so that just stayed with me throughout my whole life. Even today, I still listen to 
messages like that, usually in the morning, just to pump myself up to keep going because, yeah, in the arts, sometimes you, you don't hit a home run every single day. Sometimes you don't even get on base, but just the fact that you're putting one step in front of the other and walking into the darkness and, and uh, you kind of become the light that way. And so you set what you want in life and then you go after it. And it's more of a, an adventure than maybe getting a job, putting a widget on a digit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, talking of adventure and skipping forward a few years, it was the travel bug which bit you next. And you joined the U.S. Navy as a cook when you were 18. But by the time your enlistment ended, you were a draftsman illustrator, proving once again that art was indeed your calling. How did you go from cook to illustrator? There was, there are draftsmen illustrators in the Navy. There was a little more than 300 of them at the time. And uh, I went to personnel on board my ship and I asked and they said, there's no such thing. And a couple of weeks later on the ship, I was having uh, lunch and the guy sat down across from me and I didn't recognize his rating. And I said, what are you? And he said, I'm a draftsman illustrator. And I said, on this ship? He said, yeah, we've got a division downstairs. So as soon as I found that out, I started putting in request chits to uh, change my rate over to a draftsman illustrator. And uh, that took like six months. And then you make a portfolio and you submit it to Washington. And then they select a small number to become illustrators in the Navy. So I did that. And then the Navy was never for me. I, was, I always felt I was lucky not to get in trouble during my enlistment. So as soon as my enlistment was up, I got out. And thank God that I didn't wind up in the brig somewhere for being stupid. <laughs> And then it was back to art and back to gallery life. Talk to me a little bit about your process. Do you photograph a work or paint from still life, real life? How do you establish all the values in your work? Where does a work start and finish? So I always have some type of transparent vessel inside my work. And I use uh, different colored lights, uh, aluminum foil, plastic, anything like that to manipulate the light and set it up. And I'll set up the still life until something strikes me where it attracts me. At that time, I have these color charts that I made years ago. And it has the 13 colors I use in my painting. And I identify every color based on those 13 colors. So I usually use like five tubes of paint for the entire painting. And I'll do a color chart based off of that painting. And then what I'm seeing there, I'll do what's known as a full grisaille. So it's basically a black and white painting, although I'm using brown and white. So it's a value study. So it looks like an old sepia photograph when I'm all done. And that way the drawing doesn't hamstring me later on in the painting. And from there, the color charts that I made, now I know exactly how I'm going to paint this. So I just start glazing in my colors, almost like stained glass. So you put down one smooth, transparent color. You let that dry for three days and you'll put down another color and you start to build up this depth that you can't get just by doing a method called uh, direct painting, where it's just one layer of paint. In some areas of my paintings, you might have, you know, 75 different glazes to get that depth that you can reach into it. Wow. 75 different glazes. That is very time consuming. I mean, you're obviously a perfectionist in your work. And in one of your blog posts, you talk about how in recent years you have pushed yourself to see how far you can take a painting. So I'm curious if I was looking at one of your paintings from, say, 2015, 2016 to today, what would be some of the differences that I might notice if I looked really intently in, in how you push yourself more these days? 
There was a lady, one of my college professors, and she came to a show that I had in Joplin and she looked at an older painting, which she knew about. And then she looked at a modern painting that I've done and she couldn't believe the difference. Like there's still a learning process. And I think once it becomes a recipe and you're no longer pushing yourself, to me, you're not growing anymore, just to me. So if you saw the paintings, you'll see more of a three-dimensional look. And even uh, people are over the studio and they're sitting here. The the number one comment I get is, it looks like it out of the corner of my eye that that book just moved off the shelf or something. Because <laughs> uh, that depth that's starting to happen is kind of exciting. I'm just now starting to understand painting. So like in 20 years, I think I'll really have something. <laughs> it's only taken me like 35 years to get here. <laughs> Plenty of time. There is a painting, I think it's called Blue, that you say you worked on for two years, coming back to it again and again until you felt it had reached perfection. What were the flaws you were seeing in it that you were so determined to fix? I think that was Choices, that big a big candy painting that I have. Oh, I love that. And yeah. you can get a painting to an acceptable level. It's good or it's pretty good or something like that. But if you give it a little bit extra and you're willing to lose the entire painting by putting on more glazes, sometimes it's like, oh, no, what have I done? But then when you build it back up, you'll go to another level, I find, that uh, maybe the rest of the world can't see. But when the painting's totally complete, everybody knows there's something about that painting. They're drawn to it. So for me, uh, because of the layers, the way that I glaze, you have to wait three days for the next layer. I'll be working on another painting and I'll go in circles. So that painting took uh, 20 months, but eight other paintings came out of the studio at the same exact time. So like right now, I have a number of giant paintings going on in the studio and uh, I don't know when they'll be done, but I imagine a year or two for each one before it's finally finished. But it's kind of like once the pipeline is filled, one keeps coming out. Talking about that painting choices, which I love, I think you had it in your booth. I think that's what drew us to your booth was the painting choices, which is two blue glass mason jars lying on their side and spilling out of them are, are mint candies and Hershey's kisses and lint truffles. And it's just so Moorish. You want to go over and lick the painting, but we didn't. We didn't lick the painting, but it was just, <laughs> it was just beautiful. But I love that Behind each painting, all of your paintings, there is a narrative that you attach to it. And so that painting of choices was about all of our life journeys from hard candies at grandma's when we were a kid and then collecting kisses as a teenager and moving on to truffles as our adult taste refines before in old age we return to candies. Do your stories precede your artworks or arise from them? When does the narrative attach to the painting? On that particular one, it was during the painting when the narrative came up. A lot of times now, the narrative is first. I listen to uh, audio books on tape when I'm painting. So right now I have a lot of uh, paintings about Benjamin Franklin and uh, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. Those are all in the works right now because uh, as I was listening to the stories, and I thought, oh, that'll make a great painting, so I'll add it. But I find that like in the studio, there's there's the technical side, the artist side, but going out to the art festival is really when the painting is completed because then I get to share the stories with the people. 
Now, as well as your captivating still life glassworks, you are maybe even more well known for your dog portraits. And I wondered if you are bringing some of those to Art in the Park or whether that's kind of a separate part of your art world and art business. That's definitely separate. So when you jury into an art festival, they'll you jury in with a body of work and that body of work has to be cohesive. So I jury in with the transparent vessels and then the dogs, they're kind of, they just stay at home. And that's what I did for probably, I don't know the right number, maybe 15 years as I just painted dogs and made G-clave reproductions of them and sold them to people who own that type of dog breed. So I haven't really deleted that business, although I don't paint dogs anymore. It's been about five or six years since I've painted a dog. Well, painter Michael Stedham will be at Art in the Park this weekend from his home in Webb City, Missouri. And you'll be able to find his luminous paintings in booth number 78. And if you want to see more of his work and his dog paintings, then go to his website, michaelstedham.com. Michael, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your art and your art journey with us this evening. Oh, thank you so much. Ceramic artist Kendall Durden had me completely hooked into her art world from the first two lines on her website, kdurdenart.com. It says simply, all sorts of weird stuff, except I'm paraphrasing the word stuff. And I make work that keeps me amused. I mean, how could anyone not start clicking on page links at that point? The Springfield-based artist writes that her work is made with the odd individual in mind and that her designs encompass all manner of quirky, strange and poisonous themes. I mean, I love a good esoteric art description about harnessing the thrust of ancestral motives to depict the inner eye of universal energy exchange. But nothing beats the line. I get bored fairly easily and I really like to make things so how could I not invite art in the park artist Kendall Durden on to speaking of the arts hello Kendall hello you have the best website I feel like you should maybe do art-based stand-up or a series of TikTok reels where you're just laughing uproariously as you make your work or maybe you're already doing that (laughs) not not so much the TikTok but definitely the laughing yes So you have two bodies of work, the strangely compelling ceramic baby heads and appendage vessels, and as you put it, the more accessible black and white series. So go ahead and fill out the description for us of both of those bodies of work. Okay, so the uh, black and white line is what I'll be having at Art in the Park. That's strictly functional. It's called Scurfito work. It still has the weird, odd themes of like skulls, tentacles, robots, that sort of stuff. But it's a little more, as I said, accessible to the average person. (laughs) And then essentially to keep myself sane, I had to start doing a second line of work. And I had had the chance to basically buy a one-car garage full of doll molds from when there was a big craze for people to make dolls that looked like their kids. So I have all shapes and sizes, all ethnicities, all different facial expressions, everything of just all these weird dolls, which to me, I know people think dolls are adorable. I think they're creepy. Creepy. Yeah, Yeah. I'm with you. (laughs) And I decided to pretty much just go whole hog into that. I mean, they've got spiders on them. I use all manners of glazes. I use uh, vintage decals. Like if you think about 
from like the 60s and 70s, little old ladies going in with China paints and making flowers and stuff all over that. I, I do that sort of thing. But also I make my own spider screen prints and things like that to also add into it. So it's got a weird mix of creepy and weird little old lady. <laughs> <laughs> so when you read about this container load of baby doll parts, I mean, did you think this was the outcome? Or are you just like, oh, I'll get it and see what happens down the line? And you're like, those would make great drinking vessels. <laughs> Kind of both, honestly. Um, my senior senior thesis in college was that I had these little miniature Cupid dolls, like probably two inch by one and a half inch around that. And what I did was I just took them and I did everything I possibly could with them. I tried every type of glazing with them. I encased some in resin. I crocheted a basket of copper wire to hang one from the ceiling just to play around because generally people look at those and go, oh, that's cute. And I'm like, no, it's weird. <laughs> um, but when I got a chance to get all these doll molds, it was like, maybe I'll do sculptural, maybe I'll do something. But I have a hard time straying from functional. So it was like, I'm probably mostly going to just make mugs and bowls and vases and stuff like that. Why do you have a hard job straying from functional, do you think? I think a lot of it has to do with how I was raised. While my parents were both very creative, first and foremost, they were practical. When I told them I was going to be a ceramic artist, they tried to talk me into ceramic engineering because they thought that would be a more practical use of that interest. My dad was a woodworker, and so it was very much a, well, you could make a sculpture or you could make a shelf because you can use the shelf. To put your ceramic baby heads on. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So talk to me a little bit about your process. You start with a mold that is designed to create kind of a solid baby head or appendage, but ultimately you are looking to create a hollow vessel. How does that happen? So the general idea is that I use the trimmings from my other line of work, the black and white, and I dry them out. And then I rehydrate them to a specific level of wetness, making essentially a liquid clay. And then I pour them into the molds. The molds are made of plaster. The plaster sucks that moisture out and causes the clay to adhere to the walls of the plaster mold. And then with enough experimentation and science, I know about how long it takes to get the thickness of wall that I want. And then I pour all the excess back out of that mold. Then it dries for a while. I pop them out, do a whole bunch of other stuff to them. And then I've got a hollow form. And then you just attach baby, pudgy little baby arms and baby legs to their foreheads. <laughs> exactly. And those are those are made the same way for the most part. So I can see that not everybody wants to drink their morning coffee out of a baby head decorated with ticks and a leg coming out of its forehead. But it makes me really want to sit in your booth and watch people's reactions to your work. I'm sure there's a range of everything from disgust to delight. But what have been some of your favorite comments? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> favorite comments to very much paraphrase, but I, I will often get, especially when I used to do shows at the college where I wasn't necessarily sitting behind my own work, but it would be somebody saying, oh, what twisted mind came up with this? 
and you'll you get the gamut of like the person who made this must be wrong in the head (laughs) and then you have the person like the best part for me is when it's the unexpected person it's like the the little old lady who's you know she's wearing overalls or a sundress and she looks completely innocent and she comes up and just starts cackling like crazy and loves it when you're in a, an art festival where you do have your baby head work, and I am kind of devastated that you are not bringing your baby head work <laughs> to Columbia, um, do you kind of guess, try and guess which people are going to walk towards your booth and pick up a baby head or, or is it always a surprise to you? I don't really keep track, but there are sometimes, uh, especially I have done oddities festivals and I am kind of amazed when it's like somebody who is wearing black heavily tattooed and they look at it and go oh no (laughs) (laughs) it is often the people I least expect but half the time I look at people and I'm like yeah they're coming in my booth I know they will and it's usually pretty spot on with it so aside from the baby head like you said you have the black and white series which involves carving into a a black liquid slip that you coat over the clay and then you carve into it. So is it almost like you're carving a negative image rather than a positive one? Yeah, I basically am. The best comparison that I can use for people who have done art but not necessarily ceramics is scratchboard. Mm. So you, you do definitely have to think in the negative Um, I actually find myself sketching on white paper with black ink, and then I find that hard to translate to the pots because I, you know, finally bought myself some black paper and some white Conte pencils to make that easier. I wondered how much you map everything else in advance or whether you just sit down with a, a load of mugs and just plunge in and see what happens. So it's a little, little column A, little column B. If I'm starting a new pattern, I will plan it out. Like I use indie ink to plan it out and then I kind of follow along with that. But once I have the hang of it, I usually just freehand everything in terms of like sitting down with a bunch of mugs. I kind of have like some shapes, like a more curvy shape is more meant for tentacles in my mind. Um, And a more straight sided shape is more meant for like the robots. But overall, I kind of pick up a mug. I look at it and go, yep, that's going to be a skull flower mug and just go with that. You have been doing art festivals, I believe, since 2015. And so at some point, you must feel like you're on a bit of a production line to get enough infantry together so that you don't sit at a festival with empty shelves. But also you have this need to be amused all the time. So how do you push through those times when the clamor to just get work produced takes over from your need to be amused? Well, I try to introduce a new pattern pretty much every year. I will usually retire something that I've been doing and bring something else in on the black and white. But honestly, for the most part, what keeps me sane is the baby heads. (laughs) It's a weird (laughs) sentence. Yeah. (laughs) I always feel extra anxious for ceramic artists at outdoor events because especially in the Midwest, you can suddenly get a sideline squall come in and it rips tents up and ends in disaster. Things fall over. And I believe you are not a stranger to the awful pot smashing moment. Did you lose a lot? What happened? So the show I did, oh, three weeks ago now here in Springfield, I have a very good, very nice heavy duty tent. I was not worried about it 
didn't think to factor in that, yeah, my tent walls are still going to whip around like crazy. I had them kind of secured, but clearly not secured enough. One of them just whipped. We had like 45 mile per hour gusts that day. One of them just whipped just right into my display, knocked over one shelf, which then kind of went into some of the other shelves. Mm. Um, I actually didn't lose nearly as much as I could have, which probably it's it's a weird thing to say but I did really well the first day of the show and I barely had any stock left the second day of the show and so not a lot was lost also people are very dainty with pottery that stuff is way more durable than you think it is I had probably 30 some odd mugs on part of the display that did completely fall and I think I only lost like maybe five of them Wow, that is impressive. Yeah. So final question. I know you said you're not bringing the baby heads here, but do you not think we're weird enough in Columbia? Like, why wouldn't you bring the baby heads here? (laughs) Oh, I wish I could. Part of it, which I don't know, I honestly didn't look too hard into Art in the Park's guidelines, but part of it is you usually can't have two lines of work in one booth. Hmm. And since the black and white is more accessible, that's a little bit of it. But a good portion of it, is honestly, I can make a lot more of the black and white much faster than I can the baby heads. They take probably three times as long to make to get enough to actually have a booth. Well, to answer part one of that, I was talking to Kelsey, the executive director of Art in the Park, and I mentioned that we were going to talk and that you were not bringing the baby heads. And she said, what? Oh, really? So she is a fan of of the baby heads. So, you know, if you could just find a couple, I think Kelsey might be happy to see them. I'll have to see what I can do with that. Well, to meet Kendall and see her work, check out booth number 47 at this weekend's Art in the Park Festival. And if you want to see more of her work or maybe commission a baby head of your own, visit her website at kdurdenart.com. And that's D-U-R-D-E-N, kdurdenart.com. Kendall, thank you so much for making time to chat and I will see you and hopefully at least a couple of baby heads at Art in the Park. Awesome. Thank you so much. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, Columbia Art League Executive Director Kelsey Hammond, painter Michael Stedham and ceramic artist Kendall Durden. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. Up next is two hours of jazz with Mr. T. Sharif, a.k.a. The Jazz Broker. So stay tuned to 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. I'll be back next week with more peaks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.